This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Human Rights Watch is an independent, nonprofit organization known for their accurate fact-finding, impartial reporting, and targeted advocacy. In partnership with local activists and human rights groups, they expose the truth in order to defend the rights of all and bring those responsible to justice. They rely on the support of informed, dedicated people, so visit hrw.org kick to make a donation and support its vital work around the world. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar until 2019. hrw.org kick. And now, enjoy the podcast. So according to the president, Cohen is lying and also not lying. Somehow it's both. Yeah. And you know, Trump is the only person whose explanations include every possible outcome, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books. He's like, if I didn't do it, go to page three. But if I did, it was totally okay, go to page five. And if you want to hear about my massive electoral college victory, turn to any page, any page, folks, and I'll tell you about it. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was Trevor Noah, host of The Daily Show, dissecting President Donald Trump's response to the recent Michael Cohen plea deal. Since taking over as host during the 2016 election, Trevor Noah has further cemented The Daily Show's reputation as the smartest and funniest political satire on television with his wry wit and probing insights into the day's news. It's a remarkable rise for a man who grew up in apartheid South Africa and only came to America in 2011. But within a year of arriving in the U.S., the young comedian had made it onto The Tonight Show and then onto Letterman. Now, in addition to hosting The Daily Show, he's written a best-selling memoir that's being made into a feature film, and he's just released his 10th comedy special on Netflix called Trevor Noah, Son of Patricia. And today I'm delighted to welcome Trevor on the podcast, where he reveals why he had to hide from the public as a little boy, because his very existence was evidence of a crime under South Africa's strict racial laws, and how his mother managed to shield him from the worst of apartheid, often by making jokes. He talks about the power of humor to fight oppression, the power of language to break down social barriers, and why he believes that hateful words aren't nearly as important as addressing the hate itself. He discusses how the 2016 election changed and in some ways bolstered his own vision for The Daily Show, why the current president reminds him of certain African dictators, and how he deciphers what's news and what's nonsense in the age of Trump. Plus, he talks about his interview with President Barack Obama, whether he'd be down to give an equal-time interview to Donald Trump, and the question that he'd most like to ask the 45th president. Coming up with The Daily Show's Trevor Noah in just a moment. Trevor Noah is the host of The Daily Show on Comedy Central, but now he's stepping out from behind the desk for his new Netflix comedy special, Trevor Noah, Son of Patricia. Trevor Noah, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me on. Well, the title, Son of Patricia, is a reference to your mom, who you also talked a lot about in your previous memoir. You call her the most gangster human being you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, Tell us a little (laughs) about Patricia. Uh, Well, my mom is... um 
one of those women who, you know, forges her own path, um, raised me as a single mom, lived in a country where she was oppressed, not just because of her her gender, but also because of her race. And she just, she never let anybody stop her or stand in her way, you know. And um, you know, what was always fun about living with my mom and growing with her is that uh, she's a wild, crazy person who is focused and driven at the same time and is like the biggest reason that I am where I am today. So, you know, what was what was really fun is, I guess in life, is growing and starting to realize that your parents who were crazy at some age um you i think you you become more and more like them or you start you start to understand them the older you get you know so um that's that's the journey that i've been on with my mom so so that's why that's why i refer to her the way i do you talked a lot about her in your memoir born a crime uh for anyone who might not understand uh, talk about what that means to be born a crime well i was i was born in in um in apartheid south africa you know when i was born it was illegal for for people of different races to to mingle. Uh, you weren't allowed to have sexual intercourse. You couldn't be married. You couldn't live in the same neighborhoods, the same houses. And my mother's a black woman, Kosa woman from South Africa. My father's Swiss, a white man. And so they got together. You know, my mom got pregnant, had me, and I was born a crime. You know, so that like my mom couldn't couldn't say who my dad was on my birth certificate. Um, she had to, you know hide who I was or where I was from, really. And and so that that was the beginning of our journey together. As a child, did you have any concept of apartheid and why you had to be discreet, stay indoors, and avoid attracting attention? No, none at all. None at all, you know. That was, that was I, I think, um, a blessing um, that, that, that my mother bestowed upon me. I always think that parents have... Uh, an amazing opportunity and responsibility to define the reality that their children live within, mm-hmm. you know, and and you you may you may be limited by by what the world is around you, but as a parent, you can truly work to define um, the world your kids are in, or the way they perceive the world that they're in, and and that's what my mother did for me. I I had no clue that we were oppressed. I had no clue about how restrictive our policies were in the country. I, you know, I didn't know that I couldn't live with my dad. I just thought that, you know, we go see my dad sometimes and, you know, he's a mysterious dude. He pops in and out and she made it seem normal and, you know, it became our normal. And so I, I was lucky in that I never grew up thinking to myself that I was suffering because I wasn't. It's all the more remarkable that she was able to shield you from that because, as I've heard you say before, apartheid was the best racism in the world. White South Africans in power really made a science out of racism. They institutionalized it and made it such an ingrained part of the fabric of society and daily life in South Africa to an extent that I don't even think slavery in America was able to match. Or, or maybe that's not a fair comparison, but yeah. I think you get yeah, what I'm no, trying no, to no, say. No, you're right. No, but you're, you're right, though. I, I, th- I actually think, you know, racism all over the world has always been, um, you know, really effective but inefficiently applied a lot of the time. You know, apartheid was, as you say, a scientific approach, you know, very thinking, thinking very methodically rather than scientifically, you know, looking and saying, how do we best oppress people? Because you must remember in South Africa uh, at the time, white people were, I mean, they still are the minority, you know. So how do you how do you oppress 90 percent of the population when you only have less than 10 percent of the people uh, controlling that power? And so the key was to figure out ways to break people down. And that's that's what apartheid was all about, yeah. was was getting the numbers to be small enough that you are, in fact, um, not a minority anymore. And that, that was like a, a really 
interesting exercise. You you look at how much effort they put into it. They studied racism in Australia. They studied systems in America and the Netherlands, and they developed, uh, you know, a, a pretty impressive um, racist state. Uh, and I always think to myself, it's like it's amazing how much effort they put into the racism. You go like, imagine how much they could have done with that same amount of effort if they just thought of improving the country and and um, creating an equal world for everybody. When you hear people decry the state of race relations here in America and the rise of white nationalism under Trump and Charlottesville, as bad as it is, is there also the South African in you who almost wants to put it in perspective and say, look, I grew up under apartheid. Don't talk to me about racism. American racism is for amateurs. If you want to see real racism, I can show you racism. Oh, no. I, I You know what's funny is I, I don't think I'd ever say that to anybody. And some, really? a lot of people ask me that question. They go, they go, is it worse? Is it is it the same? Is it different? Do you recognize yeah. it? I go, racism Racism is one of those those things that's, that's um, really powerful because it is not a tangible uh it's not a tangible thing you can fight against mm-hmm. you know racism shows itself in many forms you know you 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 can live in a country that has laws that are racist when many of the people in that country may not be racist themselves they may not be actively engaging and oppressing anybody but they may be benefiting from a system that does you know you you could be living in a world where there are people who are overtly racist and so what's funny is, you know, you, you see in America and you see all over the world people saying, I'm not I'm not racist. Are you saying I'm the same as as these white supremacists? And then you see white supremacists who are like, are you saying I'm the same as a Nazi? <laughs> you know, and you <laughs> you see like everyone points to somebody else who goes like, they're the real racist. I yeah. I just have views that 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 believe certain people shouldn't have the same <laughs> rights as other people. Um, but really, I mean, it, it all it all comes from the same idea. And that is that somebody who is of a different skin color should be treated in a different manner. While we're on the subject of racism in South Africa, I want to ask you about these stories of black South Africans attacking and killing white farmers and taking their land. Some media outlets like Fox News were pushing this story pretty hard, and even President Trump gave it oxygen for a while. But I've also heard many reports that contradict this alarmism that white farmers are somehow being targeted. So it's a little hard to know what's true and what's not, and maybe it's somewhere in between. Certainly, it seems to have been overhyped and exaggerated. I'm assuming that this is something that you've been following. Right. What's your read on it? Well, I think it's I think it's an, an easy narrative to create, you know, and it's a, the best the best misinformation is something that is built on enough fact to be plausible. Uh, and then enough fantasy to to spread like wildfire, mm-hmm. and and you know that's that's a sad thing because unfortunately you know one thing about South Africa is that we do have uh, a large crime problem. You know that's something most yeah. South Africans won't lie about. Most South Africans will agree on, and because you have a population that is predominantly black, black people are the majority in the country. Then your numbers will say that most black people who are, you know, or most criminals that are in prison will be black, but that's just, that's a prison, that's a that's a population breakdown. Um, what's interesting is how people have managed to frame it as if it is targeted, you know, as if it's, as if it's you know, incidents that are specifically aimed, like there's some sort of right. genocide. And the unfortunate truth is, you, you know, you it, it's, it's a weird argument to say back, but it's basically that no, unfortunately, many people are being killed in South Africa. It doesn't matter what race they are. And, right. and, you know, we're a country born of violence. The violence, you know, started a very long time ago. Many people grew up in it. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's something that's become a fabric of, of the country. And that's something that uh, we're trying to change. 
And also, like most effective lies and conspiracy theories, it plays upon real fears and real crises that have taken place in post-colonial Africa. Now, in South Africa, you might have these isolated incidents of violence against white farmers, but in Zimbabwe under Mugabe, you really did have a systematic effort from the very top to drive out white farmers and redistribute their land. And that history either gets conflated with or to some degree lends legitimacy, I think, in a lot of people's eyes to these alarmist reports about white farmers being targeted in South Africa. That's that's, that's a lot of the time. You know, it comes down to branding. It comes down to conversations. It comes down to the the way the news wants to portray an idea, you know. Um, even recently, when when South Africa made news, you know, when Donald Trump tweeted about us, and you know, he said they're going to take the land from these <laughs> these white farmers. They're coming after right. them. The government says they're taking their land. And I was like, no, but if if you look at it honestly, there are a few things you have to consider. One, take the land. What what does that mean? Like most of most land in South Africa is owned by the state. It's leased out to individuals. So there are many people who are working land that is owned by the government and they farm that land and they have leases. Uh, a lot of the land was taken away by the government, you know, when it was an apartheid government. There are many black people who are still alive today who can remember and take you back to land that was theirs. And I think it's weird that we live in a world where reimbursing a person in their lifetime, especially for something that was stolen from them seems like a a ludicrous crime all of a sudden, you know? <laughs> yeah. So... So that's 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 like just where you see like how you frame an idea is you know imagine if imagine if I robbed somebody you know I just ran into an alley and like robbed some old lady and then they you know the police caught me and they were like hey give the money back and I was like no this is are you saying you're going to take money away from young black men is that what you're saying you're going to do and it's like yo man you you know where you got this from you, yeah. you you stole it and so people have to be reimbursed and the key is to find a way to do it in a manner where you don't punish people who maybe did not do something directly. Maybe mm-hmm. they benefited from a government that gave them the land. But at the same time, you do have to correct the wrongs of the past. Mm-hmm. And I do want to actually talk about your career in comedy. Once again, so much goes back to your mother. You said that she was the first true comedian you ever saw. What is her sense of humor like? Oh, my mom has a very uh, boisterous and at the same time dark sense of humor. You know, my mom... Like my mom will joke about everything. We like we grew up in a house where everything was joked about, you know, to the point where I I sometimes have to remember that when I when I go hang out with other people because I I forget how much people aren't used to laughing through their pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, my my mom would joke about everything that happened in our lives. She would joke about the police, the government that was that was oppressing people. She would joke about corruption. She would joke about the struggles we would have in the family. You know, if we didn't have food, she would she would still make jokes about it and what we were eating and how we were struggling. And, you know, I always felt like it didn't minimize what we were going through, but rather it gave perspective to the, to the idea. It, mm-hmm. it gave us an opportunity to remember who we really were. Well, it's interesting to me how misery and oppression sometimes create the opposite of the desired effect. It becomes fodder for humor and even mockery. Right. The way you describe your own experience makes me think of the history of the Jews and how so many Jews went into comedy because the centuries of discrimination and violence against them led to a certain brand of pessimistic gallows humor of sometimes when you're the victim of injustice and you can't do anything about it, your only recourse right. or your only way to make it through the day is to find a way to laugh about right. it. You, that's funny because that's something you generally find is that most of the best comedians come from places and spaces where people were most oppressed. Mm-hmm. 
you know, because from that comes a perspective on life and from that comes an ability to overcome and and comedy becomes one of the tools. The ability to laugh becomes a coping mechanism that that um, that you you can you can grow into a comedy career. We're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with Trevor Noah when we come back in just a minute. When you need an extra burst of energy but don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of smooth espresso and cream. Packaged in an 8.4-ounce can, it's just the right size and perfect for when you're on the go. Each can has three shots of espresso blended with European milk just the way the Italians do. At 150 to 160 milligrams of caffeine per can, it's sure to give you the energy you need to conquer the day. Espresso Monster has two delicious flavors to choose from, espresso and cream and vanilla espresso. Produced in Denmark and the Netherlands, Espresso Monster is made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend that's complete with taurine and B vitamins. Whenever I'm having a tough time getting started in the morning or dragging a little bit after lunch, Espresso Monster gives me just the shot in the arm I need to power through my day. And I like their vanilla espresso so much that sometimes I just drink it for the taste of it. Not to mention it's a lot faster and easier than waiting in line at a coffee place. So close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. Today's episode is sponsored by Zeal. I was a fan of Zeal long before they even became a sponsor on the show, so I'm very happy to talk about them today. Zeal is an amazing service that offers professional in-home massages at your door in an hour. After a long day at work or a tense holiday weekend, Zeal is the perfect way to de-stress. With Zeal, you get a professional massage in the privacy of your own home so you don't have to go all the way to the spa or sit around with a bunch of strangers at the gym. Just open the Zeal app and choose your favorite massage style. You can pick from Swedish, deep tissue, sports, prenatal, or sleep massage. An hour later, a licensed massage therapist shows up at your door. They even bring their own massage table. It's just like the spa comes to you. The best part is, tip is included so you don't have to dig around for cash when you're done. Just rinse off in your own shower and get back to your day, or go straight to bed. I already told you that I use Zeal and I'm a big fan. Sometimes after a workout or sitting at a desk all day, my back gets stiff and I can really use a massage, but the last thing that I want to do is deal with going to the spa and the check-in, the locker room, the payment, and then driving home. All that stuff just kills what ought to be a relaxing experience. But with Zeal, a massage therapist comes right to my door. They're always very professional. They bring all the nice spa stuff, the oils, the table, the sheets, even the relaxing spa music. And the best part is, when they're done, they leave, and you can do whatever you want. You've really got to give Zeal a try. Download the Zeal app and use the promo code KICK for $25 off your first massage. That's Zeal, Z-E-E-L, and promo code KICK. Zeal. Wellness on the way. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. With an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness, Bombas feel like a hug around your foot. Not to mention, Bombas stay-up technology ensures that your socks stay in place without leaving a mark and the super soft cotton material makes you never want to take them off. 
So whether you're a runner, a power walker, or a power lounger like me, there's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life. I'm wearing a pair of Marl's Calf-Length socks right now, and let me tell you, I'm a big sock guy. I probably have close to 100 socks in my drawer, so I kind of consider myself something of an expert on the subject. And these are by far the most comfortable socks I've ever owned. There's just no comparison. The amount of science and research that went into the design of these socks will blow your mind. And they look great, too. They've got all kinds of styles to choose from. So I want you to go to bombas.com kick and use the code kick for 20% off your first order. That's Bombas, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash kick, code kick, and you'll get 20% off your first order. And now, back to the show. And I know that your mom also instilled in you this idea that language equals social mobility. And I think that you speak something like seven or eight languages. Oh, no, no, ex- no. I wish. No, I speak five. Oh, five. <laughs> speak oh, only five? five? Okay. Still, that's four more than I speak <laughs> fluently. Right, right. You not only know all of these languages, but I understand that you became skilled at code switching. You were really sort of a chameleon who could change your dialect and your demeanor depending on who you're talking to. Right, right, now, right. Now, you do all of these voices in your comedy and you're a pretty good mimic, Trevor. You do a decent Obama impression and a good Trump. Is that where you get that from? Yeah, you know, I, I've always loved, I've always loved how we we change depending on who we're speaking to, just because of how they sound to us. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've always been fascinated by that concept. You know, you you look at it. I mean, look look at America, for instance, and how differently people will treat. An immigrant or, or or somebody who is undocumented or has overstayed their visa in America, just depending on how they sound. Yeah. You know, if 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 Canada was Mexico, I, I don't think the reaction would be completely the same because people don't feel like their country is being invaded when the people look and sound a lot more like them. And I've always been intrigued by that. You know, when you travel and you speak to people, if you speak to them the way they sound, then they think that you're a lot more like them. Uh, than not like them, mm-hmm. and that's something that's always intrigued me. You know, I, I I I find it funny that you can you can you can basically hack the human brain just by changing how you say your words, and all of a sudden you become an insider in a group. That's that's something that um that that that's always fascinated me, whether it's language or even accents. I'm intrigued by all this, Trevor, because I remember Peter Sellers used to say that he was only happy when he was being someone else. Without a character to play, he felt that he was just nothing and unworthy of attention, unworthy of love. And I can see how when a person is code switching and adapting to different audiences like that, it might be very easy to start to lose your grounding and your sense of self. Was that something that you (laughs) ever worried about? That's funny because in my head when you said that, I thought like all of a sudden I have a Southern accent and I've forgotten who I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I guess um, that's a little absurd. (laughs) I'm... No, no, no. But I, you know what? You know what's funny is I'm with you. I, I always think to myself, um, who I am is more a collection of my experiences and my values as a human being. Mm-hmm. Two things that I think are always constantly shifting and hopefully growing. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not afraid of changing as a person. I'm not afraid of not being the person that I once was. Um, I think I'm more concerned about never growing into the person that I should be. So, so for myself, I'm, I'm, I'm never stressed about that. You Mm -hmm. know, I, I think, um, I think if anything, learning to be like other people or learning what makes other people who they are 
can help you get a better understanding of yourself because you may realize things about yourself that you could improve because of the other people that you associate with or meet, or you could find things about yourself that you enjoy and you didn't appreciate until you find somebody who had the opposite. And and so that's 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 what I enjoy about dabbling in languages and cultures mm. and, and and different countries is that it gives me a sense of myself because I get so many experiences that shape who I am as a, as a person. And this gets to something that you talk about in your new special, which is the irony that language is so powerful, and yet depending on where you are or who you're speaking to, a word can have no power at all. For example, you talk about right. the N-word, right. which is so powerful here in the U.S. that we don't even say it. But where you come right. from, arguably the most racist country in the world, it has no power at right. all. Right, And that, that's what I... You know, it's it's funny because I always I always try and say to people, I say let's let's try and focus on, um, you know, the the structures of racism as opposed to, you know, arguing about the 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 smaller uh, manifestations of those structures. Mm-hmm. You know, like 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 I you know I'd see people arguing all the time in America, and that you know they'd go, you know, should black people be allowed to say the n word? Should why do black people say it? If you say the word, then it, it stays around. Why you you should stop saying that word, and then it'll go away. <laughs> and and I'm I'm like, well, well, if that were true, then there wouldn't be racism in South Africa because we didn't have the n word, and you know we still had the same racism. So you know, it's not it's not like there were people in South Africa running around like I want to be racist, but I can't I can't find the words. You know, it's <laughs> like the words don't restrict you. It's it's people will always find a word. What, yeah. what we have to fight is, is the actions that those words represent. We were just talking about code switching and adapting to your audience. When you came to the U.S. in 2011, did the stand-up act that you were doing in South Africa travel very well, or was there a certain process of Americanizing your comedy? Yeah, I, I completely rewrite my material when I travel. That's one of the things I enjoy. You know, I, I used to think it was a curse, but then I realized it was my greatest gift. I, every country I travel to in the world, every city I go to, I try and write my comedy to connect best with those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a byproduct of coming from a world where I had to be a chameleon. It came from the byproduct of it was coming from a country where we couldn't dictate, you know, the entertainment of the world. I was always in awe of American comedians who could come to South Africa and literally just do American jokes, tell us about American comedians and, I mean, American politicians and tell us about American news. And, and, and we would laugh because we understood America. They could go and do the same thing in England. British comedians could come to us, et cetera. But as a South African comedian, I, I can't come to America and tell you jokes about our politicians. People don't know who that is. I can't tell you about our issues in the same way. I, you know, I, I had to learn how to make what was important to me relate. Mm-hmm. And, and then I also had to find a way to, uh, you know, I guess use my point of view as a fish out of water to give people an additional perspective to the world that they had accepted as normal mm-hmm. for so long. So... You know, so that's that's what I've enjoyed. So, you know, when I when I go to Denmark, for instance, I try and write 10 or 15 minutes of comedy just about Denmark. And it's comedy that will only work in Denmark and only Danish people will, will, will really appreciate it. I do the same thing in Australia. I do the same thing when I go to Dubai or Abu Dhabi. I do the same thing in South Africa and, and in America. You know, even from California to New York, I'll change up large parts of my set. And, and I enjoy that because, you know, I, I think every place is individual. Uh, everyone has a slightly different perspective, and and it helps me, um, I think, empathize and 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 connect with people's points of view while still maintaining mine, um, you know, through the process. When you're touring the country, do you ever encounter people who approach you with this attitude of 
well, who are you to come here to the U.S. and <laughs> criticize our country and our leaders? Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, is I don't ever, I don't ever encounter that in person, funny enough. Really? You know, I know some people, some people have an idea of me and some people have actually watched my comedy or seen my show. And I think that's, that's a lot of us in the world. Many of us have ideas of people or things, but we, we don't actually, we don't actually take the time to know them or actually do the research into what they stand for, who they are. Mm -hmm. I had one guy who came up to me at a comedy show one day and he said, um, he said, uh, hey, man, I, 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 I'm a Trump supporter and, you know, I hated you and I, I saw stuff about you on Facebook and, and I just ended up at the show and I didn't think you'd be here. And, and he was like, but after your sets, he's like, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I laughed. I had a great time. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to watch more of your, your show. And he was like, I, and I said, well, I just want to know out of, out of interest, why did you hate me? And he was like, well, because there were things I saw about you that, that you know, were said online. And I was like, but. Did you ever see me say things or did you? He's like, no, I never took the time. I just saw like a headline here or there. And I realized because of the bubbles we live in as human beings, we are often, you know, we often allow our points of view to be dictated to us by whatever sources we get our, our news or our information from. And so a lot of us are, we're fine living in a world of headlines and tweets and blurbs where we don't take the time to dig into the information for ourselves. So... So, you know, I've, I've never experienced that in, in, in life, like in real life, where people say, how can you come here? I think people actually appreciate it. People go, hey, thank you for coming to Springfield, Missouri and making jokes about Springfield, Missouri. You came here, you took the time to know who we were. You took the time to acknowledge us and our existence. And we actually appreciate that. You debuted as host of The Daily Show in the middle of the 2016 election. Did you have a certain idea of what you wanted the show to be under you? And did the election of Donald Trump change that plan? You know, the greatest irony for me in life is that I had an idea of what I always wanted The Daily Show to be under my tenure. And I remember talking to Jon Stewart before, um, you know, I took over and, and I said to him, you know, the biggest difference for me is I, I would love to make the show a little bit more global. I would like to bring in a bit more of a global perspective into the show. And and John said, yeah, man, that, that would be great because it would be different. But, you know, John had his focus and I was like, I'll, I'll bring in mine. And... And I always thought to myself, I thought, well, you know, if Hillary becomes president, it's going to be a f relatively boring presidency. So then we get to focus on like international stories and what's happening in the rest of the world. And then Donald Trump won. And I thought, well, there goes, there goes my plan. And then as fate would have it, he has brought more international news into America than I think any president ever could. You know, I mean, Saudi Arabia is in American news and people are looking at what's happening in Saudi Arabia and now... Politicians are talking about the war in Yemen in a way that they haven't for a long time, thanks to Donald Trump. You know, Khashoggi, I argue, wouldn't have been, have been as big if it weren't for, for, for Donald Trump and what's going on right now. Um, you know, the way he responded to it, the way he handles issues, you know, news that's happening all over the globe. I remember when Trump was fighting with the Australian prime minister on the phone. Now we were talking about Australia. You know, when he insulted Theresa May and Brexit, now we're talking about Britain. You know, when he commented on South Africa and our politics, now we get to talk about South Africa. So strangely enough, you know, what I thought was going to be the the um, the thing that would impede us from speaking about everything happening in the globe and how it pertains to America ended up being the, the, the very vehicle that gave us access. I've heard you say that you know who Donald Trump is because you've seen that same type of person rise to power numerous times in post-colonial Africa. 
Um, right. I wonder if if we didn't have, say, a strong constitution and things like separation of powers and freedom of speech here in the U.S., could you see Donald Trump becoming another, say, Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe or Idi Amin? I, I definitely think so. I mean, to to the to the extent that he would become a dictator, I don't know. But I, I think it's safe to say that he has many of those traits, mm-hmm. you know, and we've seen it. And I know some people think it's a, an alarmism or it's like, well, for me, it's more just an observation. You go, this is a personality type. You look at him, yeah. he's he's someone who believes that he should be lauded above everything else. You know, he when judges rule against him, I mean, these are judges who are instated under, under Republican presidents. And then all of a sudden he'll call them so-called judges, you know. When 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 laws don't work in his favor, he calls them so-called laws. Mm-hmm. You see that you know he would want to fire Robert Mueller. I mean, he's asked his his White House counsel repeatedly how to do it. They're the only reason he's never acted is because they've said, "Hey, you you could get impeached." So he's shown repeatedly that there are many laws and systems that he regards as being impediments to his ability to rule the way he wants to. And that's a testament to to America's checks and balances is that he can't just do what he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I strongly believe if, if Donald Trump lived in a country where you didn't have those those balances in place, I, I firmly think, you know, that he would be he would be confidently the president. And then he would probably hand that presidency to Ivanka afterwards. And then he would he would find a way to call himself the prime minister or whatever. And he'd still be running the country and and America could be in a very different place. But right now. I think he's become more of a black light on America's democracy, you know? Mm-hmm. He he exposes all of the small things that people haven't paid attention to that that nobody knew were real. And uh, and that's 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 become one of the most intriguing parts of the Donald Trump presidency. Yeah, and I have to admit that when I heard Trump contradicting his own administration's climate change report, it did sort of remind me of Robert Mugabe saying there's no such thing as AIDS at a time when 20% of his country had HIV. <laughs> Right, we had, we had a similar thing in in South Africa with uh, with our president Thabo uh, right. Mbeki, you know, yeah. and so um, yeah, you 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 can see in many ways like Donald Trump has that. I mean, this this is a clear example of it. It's his administration. Now, we're not talking Republican Democrat. We're not talking about outside forces or a deep state conspiracy. We're just talking about his people. His people who work for him have come out and said yes. These, these climate change reports are in fact accurate. And he's going against it, and he's saying, "Look, I don't believe it, and the reason is because I'm too intelligent to believe this stuff. I have very high levels of intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, which is, <laughs> I think, not the the most succinct way to say that you're an intelligent person. Right. But I mean, <laughs> each to their own, you know. So, so yeah, yeah. It, it gives you a glimpse into who who the man is. It is a strange, strange era because." There's just this daily barrage of bullshit and bizarreness from this White House, whether it's the tweets or the lies, just about stupid stuff, the misspellings, the weird optics of it all. For a comedian, it would seem that it's almost an embarrassment of riches, but it also makes it hard to tell what's a distraction from what's important. How do you navigate that? Well, I mean, I'm I'm careful to think of things as distractions or not distractions. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think of processing the news um, based on the impact that it'll have on people, you know? So I always think to myself of, in any story, there's, it's always, are people affected or offended? And there are many things that, that may offend people, but there are a lot more things that will actually, you know, affect them. And you could be offended by something and it may not actually affect you, but there, there, are, things, there are things that could do both. And so for us on the show, it's about 
finding and making sure that we're focusing on things that will affect you in your daily life, you know, getting rid of the Affordable Care Act, you know, what will that do to people's health care, you know, looking at veteran affairs and how, you know, they they, they at one point were saying they're not going to pay, you know, for tuition or or to or, or for housing and give those grants that they that they promised the troops. You know, those are things that actually affect people. Um, you know, looking at policing decisions, looking at um, you know how Jeff Sessions was looking to to implement certain laws or how he was going to to to, to encourage policing or border. These are things that affect people. So what we try and do on the show is remember to strike a balance between the two. You know, mm. a lot of the time the offensive stuff is great to poke uh, you know poke fun at. But what affects people is is what we always try and keep an eye on. In your special, you talk about having interviewed President Obama and a moment when you made sort of a silly mistake and you were apologizing, saying, I'm so foolish, I'm so stupid. He said, you're not that bad. I've met Trump. What do you think goes through his mind every time he reads the latest tweet or comment in the press or whatever weird rumor comes out about Donald Trump? I, I don't think we need to I don't even think we need to speculate. If you just yeah. watch Obama on the campaign trail, if you watch him in interviews right now, like he's told us what he thinks <laughs> about what's going on with Donald Trump. I, he is he's genuinely perplexed. You can see, you know, in his in his demeanor. I mean, he 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 says it with his own words. He he stands on stage and he says, I don't understand how this man is the commander in chief, how this man who has no no grasp on reality is 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 still given so much power and is is still supported by so many people, you know. And I think for for all previous American presidents who are living, there is a certain sense of I cannot believe that this person is holding the same office that 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 we had so much respect for, and that goes from everyone, you know, from Bush, through Obama, through through Clinton, and. You know, and I, I don't think any president is perfect. I think there are many issues that every president had uh, to varying degrees. But there is something about Donald Trump that many people have identified as 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 being both amoral and not concerned by facts nor information. And, and that's become alarming for many people, you know, both Republican, Democrat or, or independent. And um, yeah, and that's an interesting place to be in. Well, before we go, since you've interviewed President Obama, would you be interested in giving equal time to Donald Trump? Do you want to interview him? And what's the first thing that you'd want to ask him? Oh, I would, I would love to interview Donald Trump. You know, I, I, as you've seen, I mean, he's basically shut down his, his interviews in terms of, um, you know, which publication can interview him, especially if he feels that they're against him. So the days of Donald Trump going anywhere that is not a Fox News or what he would consider a middle of the road network uh, show are over. You know, the man goes where yeah. he thinks he will be liked and where he'll get an easy pass. Um, but I, I would, I would sit down with the president and I'd have a conversation with him. Um, what would yeah, you I like to ask be, him? That's it, it. Would it would depend on the week? Mm -hmm. That's an, you know, it would really depend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on the week, you know, yeah. I mean, I mean, this week it would be a question about whether he still believes he hires the best people. You know, you look at Manafort, you look at uh, Michael Cohen, you look at uh, Roger Stone, you look at all of these people who around him are pleading guilty or, or you know, being involved in, in conspiracies and, and, and some sort of criminal activity. And he was always bragging about how he hires the best people. And, I, you know, I would, I would just, that's what I would start asking him today is just like, hey, do you, do you still think you hired the best people? You know, and, and look, and if, you, if the answer to that is yes, then... Then what changed overnight? 
when did they stop becoming the best people? Um, <laughs> there are there are so many yeah. questions you could ask President Trump. It would just depend on what day you yeah. get to speak to him on. Well, Trevor, it's been such a pleasure, and you're doing just a bang-up job on The Daily Show. I want to remind listeners to watch your latest comedy special, Trevor Noah, Son of Patricia, which is now streaming on Netflix. Trevor, keep it up, and thanks for talking with me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Trevor Noah for joining me on the podcast. His stand-up special, Trevor Noah, Son of Patricia, is now available on Netflix. You can order his memoir, Born a Crime, on Amazon. And don't miss him on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, weeknights at 11 Eastern, 10 Central, on Comedy Central. For more information on Trevor, including his upcoming tour dates, visit trevornoah.com and follow him on Twitter at at Trevor Noah. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. I had one today and it gave me just the shot in the arm I needed. Plus it tastes so good, I'd drink it anyway. That's because Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso or espresso and cream flavors. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.